Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians, Breaking Free. And our goal is to understand the difference between law and grace. That's what Paul wants us to know, the difference between what grace is all about and why his grace is so powerful. And so what we want to do this this morning is we want to look at the next section of the book of Galatians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. I titled the message today, Can We Base Our Life on a Promise? Can we base our life on a promise, and especially a promise that was made 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. This promise was made 4,000 years ago to Abraham. It was a promise that was made uh, in Genesis chapter 12. And in verse 16, we see it says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, that is Christ. And so he's saying that promise in Genesis 12 was a promise of Jesus Christ. And we make, our prom- we make our life, our eternity, dependent on this promise. So it's important for us to understand this promise. It impacts not only my eternity, but my day-to-day. And the way that I know that is because he says uh, he's building his case. And in his case in chapter 3, he starts out with this idea that people in, in Galatia had forgotten how it started. They forgot how uh, uh, it started by faith. It started by promise. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. He says, you're messing up. How are they messing up? He says, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Well, the obvious rhetorical answer to that question is, it was by believing what you heard. And by believing what you heard, you received the spirit of God. And he talks about that in verse uh, 14 where he says, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, so here's the Abrahamic covenant tied in, might come to the Gentiles, that's us, most of us are Gentiles, through Christ Jesus so that by faith, simply putting our faith in Christ, we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so there he ties the idea of believing in Christ with the promise of Abraham. And that's what he goes on in our section to begin to develop. That whole idea of why is it by promise and not by law? And what was the purpose of the law after all? And so it raised a question for me that I think we've got to address before we get into our passage. And that is this. That what is a promise? And do we live our lives based on promises? And I would first say, yes, when I was wrestling with this early on, I thought, well, yeah, we build our life on promises. Uh, Every day we go to work. Why? Because somebody's promised to pay us, right? We're living every day with a promise. Yeah, you have a contract based on that promise, but bottom line is it's a promise. You'll get paid this amount of money for doing this kind of work. And so you show up every day based on a promise, trusting that that person will actually pay you. We buy our houses on a promise that when we pay the money over a 20 or 30 year period, it will be ours, that we will own the thing. 
We make our marriages based on promises, on vows that we make to one another. And when you get to that one, all of a sudden you go, yeah, but marriage vows fail, don't they? People, marriages don't make it. And, and you begin to, to thus the weakness of the promises that are made. Because when a person makes a promise with another person, it all depends on the person, right? And if the person is not able to keep that promise or somebody doesn't fulfill that promise, then, then it breaks apart. And we begin to see the, the problem with promises. We see that with election promises, right? <laughs> and we all chuckle because we know the reality of that. A promise, was it ever intended to be kept? And in fact, you begin to think of different kinds of promises, those promises which people intend to keep, those promises which are conditional based on, well, I'll, I'll come to your house unless, of course, I get a better offer, right? Unless, of course, it rains. Unless, of course, it's in my best interest not to do it. And all of a sudden, we find the conditionality of certain people's promises. And then there's the promises that they don't ever intend to keep and they use to manipulate you making a promise so that you'll do something and then they never intend to keep that promise. And so the power of the promise is based on the one or on the paper that it's printed on, as we should say. And so you look at the scriptures and you say, can I count on these promises? Are these promises that I can live my life by? I have a very good friend who was uh, counting on certain promises, feeling like that she had some promises in the scriptures that promised that her husband would live, and he died. And so she was mad at God. And she didn't like the fact that when I brought up, maybe you misunderstood the promise. Maybe you misunderstood God. And she did not like that response at all. Because you see, we struggle with these promises and they're written in the word of God and yet, and, and we think that we should be able to count on them and we can, but we have to understand them properly or else they're promises that won't be fulfilled and we won't understand. And we'll think that God messed up when the reality is we just misunderstood. And so when we look at this idea of promises, we realize the promises are really based in the one who makes those promises. So what's our view of God? Is our view of God that he's somehow uh, a, uh, a policeman or a judge who just judges us based on how we live our lives? Is that our view of God? Is our, our view of God what scripture says that, his, that he is? Yes, he's the judge, but he's also merciful. He's also compassionate. He is holy, but he's also loving. And to understand them in his entirety and not just what we like to understand. Because if we only pick and choose what we like to understand, we pick those things which we like, then God essentially becomes us. We are God. Because we've defined God as ourselves. And so we have to go back and we have to look at the scriptures and we have to determine, is this a book of fable? Is this a book of error? Or is it the truth? And can I base my life on this book? And in our world today, there are so many that are discounting the scriptures. They're reinterpreting the scriptures to, to, in, in a way that, that they want to understand. And it hasn't been just recent times. 
Karl Barth, who was, uh, uh, lived during World War II, a, uh, lived in Switzerland, uh, originally in Germany and fled to Switzerland. And, he, and, and his view of scripture originally was one of liberalism where there, there were errors in scripture. And yet when he began to move toward God and he saw the horrors of what went on in World War II and he saw the theologians that were signing off on, on Hitler's plan and then before him on, on the plan that was made during World War I and, and he was saying, how can they do this? He began to move more toward God. But he couldn't quite square it with the scriptures. And so he said, well, the scriptures still have error. But when I read the scriptures and I have this encounter, they're a witness to Christ. And whenever I have an encounter with with Christ, he's the living word and he's without error. And so it's at this level that the scriptures are without error. And he moved away from the written text. And my question is, if God can be without error at this level, can he be without error at this level? Absolutely. Can he communicate what he wants? Is this a shell game that he's playing with me? And he's, he's going, ah, oh, you missed my will. Uh, and then shuffle him around again. And then, ah, ah, sorry, you messed up again. I mean, is he trying to hide his will from us? Or does he want us to know what it is? He's fully capable of com- communicating to us as well. And so that we, we go back to this issue of, can I depend upon God? How do I know? I go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and those who have tried to disprove the resurrection. And and if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he said he is and what he says about God is true. And if he didn't, then we all need to just go home. And when you look at different people who have really wrestled with the issues, I mean, many of us have already done so. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites, Mere Christianity. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to read it. It's an old classic book about Jesus Christ and about the, the, the truths of Scripture and the truths of who God is. And you look at C.S. Lewis's life, he was an atheist who led himself to Christ trying to disprove the resurrection. Harold Morrison wrote a book, Who Moved the Stone? Same thing, newspaper man. You look at Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he started out as this atheist, not, or at least agnostic professor that Christians kept sharing their faith with, hoping to lead him to Christ. And he goes, I'm tired of this. I'm going to prove them all wrong. And, and he led himself to Christ, ended up writing Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You look at these different people, and you realize the resurrection is real, it's true, it's right. And because of that, Jesus is who he said he is. And because of that, God is who he says he is. And the promises that have written here, which Jesus confirmed, are those that we can base our life upon. The promises are valid, and yet we struggle. Even C.S. Lewis struggled He struggled whenever his wife died. He had married a woman who had been an atheist, communist, Jewish background. That was who she was. And she was led to Christ by C.S. Lewis's lectures and by his, his books and so she, as she came to Christ, she uh, had moved uh, her and her two sons, uh, she was a widow, uh, to uh, closer to uh, where C.S. Lewis taught so that she could just be instructed by him. And, and, 
And what happened was she came up with cancer. And when she came up with cancer, he felt sorry for her. And, and so they had a, uh, he married her not because of romance, but because of her sons, because he wanted to make sure that they had somebody in their life that cared for them. And then she went into remission and they got a number of years together and, and they, they truly fell in love. And when she died, he was angry at God. He didn't know what to do with all these emotions. In fact, he, he, he wrote a series of journals that, that, that came together and was, was uh, put in the form of a book called A Grief Observed. And he just observed his grief and he observed the struggle that he went through. And he, a, a guy with that incredible intelligence was wrestling with the issues. He wrote the book before he had come to terms with assurance of salvation. Later, he came to adopt that theological position, but his book doesn't reflect that. And he was wrestling with the issues on a deep level and he didn't put his name to it because he didn't want other Christians to know that those were his thoughts and struggle with their faith. And yet he wrote a profound work that helped him as he worked through the processes and came back to a point of hope. And so when we read the scriptures, we realize that the purpose of the scriptures is not to show us perfect people. The purpose of the scriptures is to show us and give us hope. These things uh, are uh, in, in Romans 15.4, Paul talks about, he says, these things were written for our instruction that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so as we look at the promises of God, it gives us hope in this life. It gives us hope as we, as we wrestle, but we've got to make sure that we understand that we're going to misunderstand God at times. He's unlimited. He's perfect. He makes great decisions, and yet we don't always understand those decisions, just like our kids don't always understand our decisions. And one day, as I've thought about who God is, I've thought, you know, there's going to come a day when, when I'm with him and I'm going to realize why he made certain decisions and I'm going to realize, and this is the thing that's really hard for me to come to terms with from my limited perspective, but I know it's true and I know it's right, is that one day I will see his decisions and I will see and understand the situation around it and I will say I would have made the same decision as he did. That's a profound place to be when you finally come to those terms and realize as much as I don't understand here that one day I will come to that conclusion because I know that he is good. I know that he is merciful. I know that he is compassionate. I know he's the king of kings. I know he's all wise. And from my limited vantage point, I can't see it. It's like the person who's driving on a windy mountainous road and all they can see is kind of part of the next curve around them. They can't see the big semi coming the other direction. And yet the guy in the airplane can see it. The guy in the helicopter can see what's going on and see the bigger picture and understand. And I realize that's God's vantage point. He sees my life even though I don't understand it. And he guides me and I need to respond to him. And as I respond to him, then he will lead my life. As I respond to his spirit, he's given me his spirit. I need to live by his spirit. He's given me the opportunity for the faith. I need to live by faith and not based on just me. And that's why Paul comes to this point when he's already talked about living by faith. He's already talked about receiving the promise of the spirit. He wants to clarify 
And in chapter 3 and verse 15, he does so by saying these words. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. And when he says, so it is in this case, he's saying, if the lesser, then the greater. Right? That's what he's saying. If it happens in just human life, in this case, it's the same. And so he's going from the lesser to the greater, from our world to God's world. He's going from the known contracts that we have here to the unknown, the way God works. And so that's why he's given this example. He says, no one can add to, and, and the word codicil comes to mind. That's one of the words that's used. So you have a, a contract and you want to add a codicil. You want to add something to it. You can't just add to it. And we sign contracts all the time. We just don't realize it. The way we sign it is it says, click to agree. Right? You've probably done it this week. Click to agree. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you have actually read. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. But you signed a contract. In other words, you signed a contract you didn't read right? And this contract, I can't go in and just say, you know what, I don't like this part of the contract and go in and, you know, do some sort of, you know, uh, I guess I would probably have to hack into it, but uh, to modify the contract and rewrite, I don't like this wording on this phrase, and I can't do that. The only thing that I can do is contact the company and say, you know what, I don't like this phrase in the contract because it implies this, and I don't want to click to agree to that. And then if they agree, then it can be changed. It has to be a mutual thing. It can't be unilateral. I can't just go in and sign and change a contract. Well, here's the interesting thing is this contract that, uh, or, or this, these promises that are made that we're talking about in this passage are promises spoken to Abraham. We just read that in verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It was written to Christ. It was promised to Christ. It was promised, spoken to Abraham. And we think that this seed idea is the Jewish nation. No, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It's Genesis chapter 12. That's where this promise was made. In Genesis chapter 12, when you look at this promise, it's an amazing promise. It's a promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's not just a Jewish nation promise. It's a nation for all of us. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land. So the only thing that he had to do was leave. He had to leave and follow God. And then he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The blessing is, is there. And it's, it's a promise that is made to Abraham. And he makes this promise, and it's, it's a promise that, that all of us will be blessed through him. So what about the law? Verse um, 17 says, what I mean is this. In other words, let me clarify what I'm talking about. The law introduced 430 years later from the time of Abraham to the 400 years that they, that was about 30 years or so, and then uh, the 400 years of where they were uh, uh, 
uh, in captivity in the land of Egypt. It says it does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So when you have a promise, you don't have the um, law taking over for a promise. Now, typically what we'll have is whenever you have a contract, say, for instance, uh, you want a new interest rate on your house, and maybe you've gotten an opportunity for a better interest rate. Not now, but in the past, that was the case, right? And so you want a better interest rate, and so you would refinance your house in order to get the better interest rate. What happens to the old contract? It goes away. You're no longer responsible for the old interest rate. You're on the new interest rate. But here you have a promise and then law. And so law doesn't overtake the promise. The promise still holds. This promise is still uh, planning to be true. And so it's not set aside this promise or this covenant that was made in prior times. Otherwise, for 430 years, people were lost. They didn't have the opportunity for the law. Well, he goes on and says, for if the inheritance depends on law then it no longer depends on promise. You can't have both. It's either promise or law. I mean, that's an interesting statement. It's it's not both. It's not promise and law going together. It's one or the other. And you'll see that later in the passage as well. It says, for the inheritance depends on law, then it no longer depends on promise. But God in his grace... So he's talking about grace here, gave it. In his grace, he gave it. And that's what we see at the beginning of this this book where he says that uh, when he talks about the gospel and he talks about grace in verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And so this idea of it's a free gift, salvation is given away. And he says, so... But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. He was given righteousness. He was given forgiveness through a promise. So then you think, well, what's the purpose of the law? And that's the next question he asked. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And so you find several things through that little phrase there. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins. It was added so that we would know what sin was. In fact, that's the question. Was it added to make us aware of sins? Was it added for some other reason to take care of sins? And we find that it was added to make us aware of sin. Romans 3.20 tells us this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I become aware of sin I become aware of my own sin when there's a law. When I'm driving down the road and there's no speed limit sign, I'm not aware of sin, right? When I see the speed limit sign, all of a sudden, and I compare that with what's on my, you know, dashboard, I become aware of righteousness, (laughs) sin, when I'm not keeping it, right? And so... In Romans 4, 15, when there is no law, there is no transgression. That's an important one to remember as a parent. Whenever we're getting ready, our children have done something that we don't like or we think is wrong, we think it's going to be harmful to them and we want them to do something about it. When they innocently do something wrong and they don't know that it's wrong, what's the first thing you do? It's not 
discipline. It's instruction. And when we instruct our children, this is the right way, this is the way to go, and if you don't go that way, here's the consequence, right? Now they know. Now if they disobey, now it's willful. They know what is right to do. And so we're not aware uh, in our own lives of what is wrong and what is right unless God lays it out for us and he's laid it out for us. Romans 5.20, the law was added so that the trans... Uh, trespass might increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so we're aware of our sin we're aware of what's right we're aware of what's righteous I love Max Lucado he gives an illustration in regard to this in terms of the way that we typically look at this the way that we typically look at this is like the, the kid whose mom has said I want you to clean your room it's a mess it's a pigsty And what does he say? He doesn't say, yes, I'll go clean the room. He says, you see my brother's room? My room looks better than his. Let's go see it and go down the hall. You look at the brother's room, it's terrible. Look at that, mine's better than that. And then mom says, come with me. I want you to see my room. Oops. Meticulous, everything's in its place. This is what I mean. Not what your brother's room looks like. And you see, we, we tend to look at everybody else. Well, I'm doing better than they are, so I must be okay. And it's like, no, let's, let's compare it to the master's life. And all of a sudden, all reality is right there in our face. And we realize that we're sinful and we could do nothing about it and we're more sinful than we could ever imagine. Like Isaiah found out in Isaiah 6 when he comes before God and he falls on his face and he says, get away from me, I'm an unclean person and I live among a people of unclean lips. He realized his sin when he saw the reality of who God is in his holiness. And so the law was added for our transgression so that we would know what is wrong and what is right. And we would realize how far short we come. In fact, when I look at the, the Old Testament and I look at all the people in the Old Testament, I think, God, was there anybody that did it right? It seems like a book of failures of people who, who aren't good enough and aren't, and it's like, exactly, that's exactly what I'm supposed to see. The best among us fall short. That's why Christ came, because we couldn't do it. We couldn't manage. We could never be righteous enough. But Jesus could and did He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. What was the purpose of the law? To expose me to my sin. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, the promise was supposed to be until Abraham, until the seed came. Until Jesus was born into this world, until Jesus came incarnate in this world and he came to die for our sins, which was beyond the law, which was on the other side of the law. The law was just a temporary thing. So the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Verse 20, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. And so you look at this and you think, okay, so it was put into place until... 
Well, so does that mean that the law is opposed to the promises? It means, does it mean that? And, and Paul asks that question. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. They work together. How do they work together? For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. And they're saying that it didn't happen. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We're a prisoner of sin. We cannot take ourselves out. We cannot extract ourselves from sin. We're a prisoner to sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, so we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive what is promised, might be given to those who believe. There it is, that idea of givenness. Salvation is given. And it was something that... I, it's amazing how many times I can talk about the gift of salvation that God gives and people don't get it. They walk away thinking, man, I hope I'm good enough. I hope God's pleased with me. And you think, no, it's given. Salvation is given. God's pleasure is through Jesus Christ. And when you receive Christ, he is completely pleased with you. That's what the gospel is. That's the power of the gospel is his grace that I can be a failure just like everybody else in the Old Testament. I can be completely unworthy. But because I receive Jesus who is completely worthy, he sees me through Jesus' colored glasses. And we, he sees me through the righteousness of Christ. And I'm blown away because I know I'm unworthy. I know where I fall short. I might be able to hide it from you, but I don't hide it from him. And so what was the purpose of the law? Why did, if it's not opposed, what is the, how does it work together? And he says in verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. So it said we were held prisoners of sin, now prisoners by the law, locked up until... There's that idea of until again, until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. In charge is that idea of a pedagogue, the idea of someone who, who uh, uh, is a, uh, in, in that case, was a person who was a teacher or a guardian who would uh, guardian and have guardianship over these, these children and they would take care of them until they became adults. And so this idea of this teacher. So the law was to be intended to be a teacher to lead us to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. That's how it works together with grace. That's how it works together with promise. The law revealed my need and it was satisfied through the promise made to Abraham, the seed that was to come. It says that we might be justified by faith, that we might be declared not guilty by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The law is no longer necessary. We don't need that supervisor. We don't need that teacher that teaches us. We, don't, it, we already know what is right. We already know what is wrong. God has already laid that out. And we simply need faith in Jesus. That's how it works. And that's why, that's how we live our lives. And he lays that out so that we'll understand when we get back to verse 2 of chapter 3, or actually verse 3 says, are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He says, why are you going back to law? 
Why are you going back to human effort? That's not how it started. It started with promise. It starts with faith. And that's why he says, I, the life I live, I live by faith. And so I would say that in our lives, as we go through this week, I want to encourage you, those times when you feel like, God, I'm not worthy enough. God, I'm not measuring up. God, I'm failing here. God, I'm not. And you start hearing yourself tell yourself those messages. I want you to stop and I want you to say, stop it. I live by his grace. I am saved by his grace. I am no longer under law. I no longer have to live by law. I no longer have to be on a performance standard. I'm on a faith standard. He has given me an incredible gift of his son. And when I received him as my savior, his spirit came within me and I can live a life by faith with him working in and through me and doing greater things than I could ever imagine accomplishing. The life I live, I live by faith. And I would say we need to remind ourselves every day it's grace. I live by grace. When you find your heart disquieted within you, when you find yourself beating yourself up, when you find yourself feeling far away from God, I want you to remember what we talked about here. What brought me to Christ? What brought me near? His forgiveness by his grace, by his forgiveness. And because of that, I can live by faith. I can live in the power of his spirit. I can live by his grace, which he gifts to those who ask. Father, we come to you this morning and we admit to you that we are a broken people. We admit to you that we fall short. We admit to you that it's so easy to live by law, to live by a performance basis that makes us anxious inside, that makes us nervous, that makes us fearful that we may fail, that we may come up short. And you want to give us peace. You want to take all of that away. You want to take away that fear. Perfect love casts out fear and you want to take that away so that we're not living by fear. We're living by your grace. We're living by your forgiveness. Every day experiencing how your forgiveness calms our hearts, comforts our hearts, encourages us, gives us hope. And so Lord, today I pray that you would help us this week to remember it's by grace. It's not by law. I'm no longer under the supervision of law. We are no longer under the supervisor that points out where we fall short. We live by your grace. We live in your favor because of who you are. Thank you. We praise you and we worship you now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.